How can we make the world better? By making ourselves better. The Dr. Joe Show explores how you can make positive personal change by using his groundbreaking and highly effective I Am approach to understand who we are and why we do what we do. Your small changes can have big effects. Join us now for the Dr. Joe Show with Mark Stiles of Stiles Law, Thomas McCoy, and your host, Dr. Joe Schrand. Yeah, welcome, everyone. Well, welcome. Thank you, Larry. Thank you. Good to be here. So, Tom, should we just go right for it? I mean, it's lovely to have a return guest here who's been here before and who just dashed in. This is one of the great things about being on Zoom and virtual is you could just show up. There we go. There we go. Who's our guest? There we go. Who's our guest, Tom? Well, Dr. Joe, we're welcome. Yeah? Yes, please. Yeah, absolutely. Don't, don't, don't mind me. It's just, go ahead. Tonight, Dr. Joe, we're welcoming back engineer, game developer, activist, and host of the podcast Rocket on Relay FM. Welcome back to the Dr. Joe Show, Brianna Wu. It's so good to be here. Thank you for having me back. I love doing, uh, I love coming here. This is such a great place. Oh, we're so glad to have you here. And how have you been since we saw you last? It's been a couple of months. You know, uh, to be really honest with you, I have been so focused on the midterms. Uh, As soon as I finish this panel, I'm actually going to be packing to uh, head down to Georgia to go work the uh, the runoffs in a help center in Warnock down there. So, uh, you know, it's just been a a really mad dash leading up to the midterms. That's a lot going on down there in Georgia. So (laughs) what, what do you make? Let's just get right into it. So what do you make of this whole both the schism in the United States, but also that maybe are people starting to like, like maybe we should do something else. Yeah. You know, I was really encouraged by that with the midterms, Um, you know, just to tell you a little bit about me. um, Yeah. I'm not like a lifelong leftist. Uh, I grew up in Mississippi. Uh, You know, actually my first job out of college was working for the Republican party. Uh, One of my first internships was with Senator Lott. So I, I kind of came to the left by uh, thinking my way through it. Um, something I've always prided myself on is at least understanding the other side. Um, I think our differences are largely manufactured. I think when you really get down to it, something I've learned throughout my career is most people are out there, they're looking for human dignity. And I think both of the two sides kind of present different answers uh, with that. Um, so I think when you're living in such a polarized media ecosystem, I think uh, it basically treats our politics as a blood sport. That's my opinion. Was it this way 20 years ago, 30 years ago? You know, I think I think you're a little older than I am. So maybe Thank you have you. a yes, better, I am, you may have a better perspective on this than I do. My first real political memory was in 1994 with the Republican uh revolution uh and Newt Gingrich taking over the house. Yeah. And I remember that because, you know, I was a child of Reagan and then Bush, and then it seemed to me politics got really nasty and personal in a way I was not comfortable with. So, 
It seems to me it's gotten worse every year I've been alive, but I'm only in my 40s. So, I mean, I'd be more interested in what you think, actually. Yeah, I, I, I am older than you, Brianna, by quarter of a century almost. <laughs> okay. he's, he's 47. No, yeah, I'm 47. There we go. Now. There we go. There That's we go. when I was born. No, um, no, it, it, it really has shifted. I think you're right. I think with with Newt Gingrich, there was the beginning of a shift. But before that, I think that you know there was definitely you know Democrats and Republicans, mm-hmm. um, but there was a shared vision. Yes, I think for the United States, how we got there, that was the difference. But the shared vision was, you know, that that we were a place where everybody wanted to be and we wanted to sustain that. You know, now now my story, you know, I wasn't born in the United States. I was born in Cape Town. Cape Town, South Africa was a British subject, didn't move here until the 60s or so, late late 60s. Um, What year, if I can ask? So I got I got here in well, I. I spent the summer of 67 here. And the reason I remember that is because that's when I fell in love with the Boston Red Sox. It was the impossible dream year. It was also one of my favorite musicals, Man of La Mancha. Um, And that's why it was the impossible dream to dream. the. I fell in love with the Red Sox, then really moved here in like mid 68, 69, about that. Um, And I actually, I can tell you almost the week. Yeah, I'm getting teary just thinking about it. I remember being in fourth grade, Oak Hill School in Newton. Right. Elementary school was like fifth grade, right? And I was, I'd come over from England. So I was, you know, just in a whole different sort of educational frame of mind at that point. And I remember sitting in the classroom with my new friends from America and we're watching television and we're watching Kennedy, right, Robert Kennedy, and we watch him get assassinated. Oh my God! I will never forget that live on the air. There we were, just these kids in this room, and I was thinking, "What kind of country is this?" Yeah, I mean that's a Tuesday for kids on the internet now. I don't know if it is. I mean, I I, you know, Doctor Joe, something I would would really love to hear from you is. You know, when you're when you get to your forties, you start to understand history kind of moves in cycles like this. But you've literally gone through a presidential assassination. You saw the the race riots after that. I mean, you've seen the United States really tearing itself apart through that era, and that was just when you got here. How would you compare that era to, like, say the the January sixth era? That seems like a really important bit of knowledge for us people my age to understand yeah i i think that the unrest that we had here in the united states was out of a desire to really i think actualize the constitution and to make it real which is the complete opposite i think of what we saw january 6th yeah which was to say we'll we'll have this just for this group of people. Now, I, I don't know, and I, I don't want to, you know, get all political about this, but I do know that what you said before is, is so important. We we all want to be, you know, we all want dignity. Yeah. We want to be respected and valued. 
And whenever that doesn't happen, it activates part of our brain. Yep. And we then have a choice. We can either do the same thing to somebody else, or we can step back and wonder, why was that person disrespectful? Yeah. Which is a different approach. But what what the world was like then was a sense of what was right. You know, the mm-hmm. anger, remember anger, there's nothing wrong with anger. It's what you do with it that matters. Right. And that's what these protests were. It was the anger to say it's time for a change. Anger is an emotion designed to change things. That's why people get angry. I would be really interested to ask you this, and I, I, I mean this completely in a non-political sense, but it seems to me that one of the things I find really frustrating today, even working with my own side, which is progressives, is very few people are interested in building things, right? You want to tear everything down. Every system is corrupt, you know, and, and don't get me wrong. I'm not defending it. There, We have a lot of very serious problems, even here in, in the great Commonwealth of Massachusetts. We've got very serious problems. But It seems to me that like if you were living through that period of American history, you saw America truly do some great things, right? And you go like space exploration, you know, uh, many of the civil rights advances of that time. And what I find so frustrating today is it seems like that was a period of strife where we came together and built things. And together, and and now this period of strife is more about destroying half the country. (laughs) And it just seems like that's a less productive impulse from my point of view. Yeah, I agree. It certainly certainly is less productive to try to destroy things. And I think there is, maybe it's it's, um, just an exposure of the schism that's always been there. Mm -hmm. Uh, And now it's... It it never went away, but I think it's now been sort of given a credence. And rather than say, this is a bad thing, let's understand it. Yeah. So what's your take on it? Why do you think it's happening now? So, you know, we were talking a bit in the break about uh, brain chemistry and something we're increasingly having conversations about in the, the tech industry is... Um, How can I put this? So, you know, I think all of us would agree one of the causes of obesity is we've engineered these superfoods that like trick our bodies into eating more of them beyond what nature can design. And I think in that same way, the tech industry has created a political uh, environment through social media that is a super stimulator beyond what human beings are designed to be able to tolerate. Like, think about your Twitter timeline. You're refreshing, refreshing, refreshing. Dopamine, get that like, that's more dopamine. Retweet, quote, tweet that snark, that's dopamine. And then cortisol, which is fear, 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 worry about this. This is a threat to you. So I... From my perspective, I remember what discussing politics was like before Facebook. And I mean, don't get me wrong, that first Bush election in 2000 was rough, but it seems to have really gone downhill fast after that. And I I really have come to believe that social media is the equivalent of of nicotine, right? I think it's bad for us as a society. What do you think? 
I think that's a, a really interesting idea. So it's it's sort of then in your Facebook. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I do think that's a very interesting idea that our brains are not quite equipped for the rapidity of this information. Yes. I mean, I think we're pretty good at information and we, we, we have a brain that can, that can detect differences. Our brain is designed to detect differences. If you think about it, little babies develop stranger anxiety. They can't have stranger anxiety unless they can compare two sets of information. Uh, this is familiar and this is unfamiliar. If you show a baby a white piece of paper with a dark line in the middle of it, it orients to that dark line. What What is separating things? So our brains are designed to check out differences. Makes sense if the bush behind you has been still and is suddenly rustling, you want to alert to that. Could be a saber-toothed tiger. So what happens when you have all this information, as you're saying, just coming in so fast? Yeah, I think the dopamine rush is important. And as we were talking off air, dopamine interferes with oxytocin, the neurohormone of trust. When we talk about this in terms of substance use, because all drugs and alcohol force the brain to make substance, uh, all drugs and alcohol force the brain to make dopamine, and dopamine interferes with oxytocin, which is trust, what we teach is you can get high, but the price you pay is trust. You just decide which pleasure is more important to you. It's not about morality. It's about mortality. It's the way the brain works. So the question is, what's happening now that there is such a desire, really, People wouldn't be falling for these things if there wasn't an urgency and need to be able to trust someone. The question, though, is how do you choose? How do you choose? How do you know? How can you verify? And, you know, I I mean, you guys are are huge in this, right, with with all the cyber attacks and everything. I mean, how do you Mm -hmm. protect against those things? Well, this is another form of cyber attack isn't it but yeah i think it's i think it's uh i think it's an attack on your your hardware i mean something i had to get a lot of help with after uh gamergate which was a it was basically it was a an emotional terrorism attack on uh, women that worked in the game industry um you know there's not a good up way to have a law and order episode made about your life that happened to me with all the death threats and rape threats that i had and something happened as a result of that like my brain was broken I had to go get help from a trauma specialist here in Boston. And uh, you know, she, what she told me is she's like, look, Bria, I know you love horror movies, no horror movies, no Facebook, mm-hmm. you know, none of this. We have to reset the neural pathways in your brain. So think about this. Like if you're walking through a forest, you, the, the leaves and the, the, the underbrush senses that you're there and it kind of creates a path for humans to walk through your brain is the same way. So if you're constantly getting anger, anger about this threat, about this anger, threat about this, you're literally rewiring the way that your brain works. And look, I'm as guilty of this as anyone else is, you know? Um, I think, unfortunately, this is the, the consequence of spending a lot of time on Twitter. Mm. But what's interesting, Rihanna, is once you are aware of that, you've actually shifted your brain to another part, to the prefrontal cortex. Yes. And you can begin anticipating what will happen next if I keep doing this. Mm -hmm. And it probably is not a great outcome. 
but but yeah, we do develop these neural pathways. But I really believe the fact that we can develop them means there's this thing called neuroplasticity, right? You know, it's moving yeah. around and things changing all the time. Doesn't that mean we can't change back? Doesn't that mean we can't undo some of these particular pathways that have led us to be so limbic? We're we're in this limbic world right now where we're on the fight, flight, freeze mode all the time. Yeah. No, I definitely agree with that. I, um, yeah, I did one of the earlier shows I did with you was with um, a a lovely woman. She and I shared the same politics and the same, you know, belief that trans people should be treated with dignity. It was really apparent to me in the course of that interview. She was extremely traumatized and, um, you know, that limbic system was just set to high on, on everything we were discussing. It was, you know, I don't think she was a bad person. Like she's a lovely person. I wish her nothing but the best. I don't want to undermine any of that trauma. There's certainly attacks on trans people here in the United States right now. But, you know, it was, I, I do think it was distorting the clarity by which she could see things. I think it was a lot of black and white thinking. Um, what I've noticed is, you know, just for me and my political um, career, again, I'm not a doctrinaire leftist. I grew up in the right. I work on the left, right? Like I have a pretty wide range of perspectives because of that. You know, I'm, I have always been uncomfortable with like the extremist black and white thinking on both sides. And I frequently found myself ostracized in the progressive community for not falling to that black and white thinking. Um, I'll give you an example. Today, uh, Nancy Pelosi resigned as Speaker of the House, saying she's not going to seek a, a, another term. I put out something basically saying, yeah, Nancy Pelosi doesn't get the credit she deserves for um, uh, not uh, for standing against the second Iraq war. Completely factual statement, like Hillary Clinton voted for that. Many people did. And I got chewed out on Twitter just for saying that, a factual statement about that from from progressives. So I think there's a calmer, I think if we're interested in building things in the United States, that fundamentally has to be about addition. It's got to be about finding people who you agree with enough on to try to accomplish common goals together. I think anything that's not about addition is a losing strategy. I think one of the concerns I have with this particular idea is does that leave us at risk of this continued tribalism Mm -hmm. where we sort of stick with one group against another? There's there's another neurochemical called vasopressin. It is the precursor evolutionarily to oxytocin. Oxytocin is the neurohormone of trust vasopressin is activated to bind a group closer together Hmm. when that group is attacked by another group. It doesn't promote an attack. It's not about aggression. It's about defending my group against another. So when you fell in love with the Red Sox and they had all those years of losing, I bet you formed a lot of that chemical in your brain with other Red Sox fans. Absolutely. You are so right. <laughs> I mean, with, you know, with that in mind, when, when um, we went to opening day, my, my daughter Sophie and I went to opening day post COVID right? and, and was 16% capacity for opening day. And, and my daughter looked around and she said, 
wow, I've never seen the ballpark so empty. Mm. I said, you should have been here in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. <laughs> this is a good crowd. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, oh. but, but, but to get to that, that's part of what it is. We, we, we have a tribal brain. We form these groups. The groups were usually maybe 20, 30 people. And then there was another group, 20, 30 people. We now have billions of people. But when are we going to realize that it's one group? Yeah. It's called humanity. Yeah. One group. We all want the same thing, as you're saying, dignity, respect, to be valued. And yet, we can't do that unless we're aware of it. Yeah. We value each other, you know. But we've spent millennia increasing our value by decreasing somebody else's. And because they do the same. Yeah, Tom? You know, I believe wholeheartedly we all want the same thing. I don't believe for a second that we all want the same thing for others. Ooh, I agree with that. Yeah. Well, you know, yeah, Tom, we're friends. I I hope I can push back on this a little bit. (laughs) Yeah, it's, I'm saying this is just my perspective having grown up in Mississippi. So, yeah, I think there's a stereotype about Southerners of being like, frankly, hateful bigots, right? And look, it's clearly true. Look at the legacy of racism and slavery in the Deep South. It's not a record to run that's to be proud on. I mean, Boston's but, got its own problems. A hundred percent. At least when in Mississippi, you go to school with other, with, you know, black people and people of other races. That's not necessarily the case here. Um, but what I was going to say is I think that if I were being giving the most charitable thing I could if I were given the most charitable explanation I could give a Northerner about a deep Southerner, I would say this is a culture that's filled with people that feels like the rest of the country is making fun of them and don't respect them. And they feel like they're poor and they feel like the answer to that is what these white politicians have been telling them forever. It's low taxes and uh, the, 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 the minorities that are taking things from you, right? Um, and that's just what they're told. It's the only thing on TV. Um, you know, it's the only thing on the radio. It's the only thing on the billboards. And it's, it's this culture that you are, are, are funneled into. Right. So I think if you want to be charitable to people like that, you can say, well, you know, I do believe this extreme poverty in the South. This is something we need to get serious about addressing together. You know, I see your humanity. I'm not going to make fun of your accent. All those like really easy things is just it's just showing some basic humanity. Now, I'm not saying that's always shown back to us, but I think there are things we can do to not aggravate that, if that makes sense. I think it it makes a lot of sense. And, you know, we're going to come back to this. But and we were just talking also a little affair about your show, Brown. You want to tell our audience about your show? (laughs) So, you know, back in uh, in 2015, um, I was very frustrated that uh, tech coverage uh, tended to be uh, overwhelmingly men uh, talking about tech coverage. So, you know, I did what they said you should always do. I went and found uh, three amazing women and uh, I uh, got together and I basically I, I, I 
I pitched a show to Relay FM. Uh, that has been, my gosh, that's close to eight years now uh, that we've been doing this. It's called Rocket. It's over at Relay FM. Uh, my co-hosts are Simone de Rochefort, uh, who is a video person over at Polygon.com, one of the premier gaming sites. And my other co-host is uh, Christina Warren. She's literally the public face of GitHub and Microsoft right now. So uh, just very excited. We uh, We try to talk about tech and make it really fun. That sounds so great. And yeah. especially, you know, yeah. Why can't we have women doing that? <laughs> you know, it's, uh, I just thought it would be, I, I didn't want to make a big thing of it. I just wanted to hear some different voices. So I went out there and, and built it. Um, you know, Dr. Joe, I would love to ask your opinion on this. Can I tell you about a situation I had this week? And I've been asking myself if there's a way I could have handled it more skillfully. I would love your opinion on this. So um, I was giving a, a talk to a bunch of gamers and you know, they were. I was there to talk about um, what women are facing in the game industry, right? And, you know, it is factual and true that women in the game industry face a lot of harassment and anger and sexual misconduct. But I got this avalanche of questions afterwards, and it was really apparent to me that I had worded all those things in a way that it made the men in the audience listening to that really feel like they were under attack. Like I wasn't talking about them specifically, but that was the message that they heard from that, just talking about sexual misconduct in the game industry. So like I, I'm thinking about like their brain chemistry and fight and flight, and I'm just, I've, I've been asking myself all week how I can talk about that in a way that won't instantly like get people on their guard, if that makes sense. I think I would start off exactly like that. Yeah. And say, this is what happened. Sure. Before. And it was never my intention of angering these people. Sure. Um, and perhaps we can say, you know, there's a section of people who do this. Sure. But, but you can absolutely acknowledge that people in the audience may get angry yeah because they may think you're talking about them right and you're not because they probably wouldn't be in the audience <laughs> if you were sure you know but but this is uh words are so important and the way we the way we express them um but with specifically with your your example, what did you say in response when you saw all these angry guys saying, hey, not me, and, you know, I feel really, like, defensive? How did you respond to that? Well, I tried to say, you know, I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about a problem within the game industry, right? Um, but I guess what I'm saying is just that message itself, um, really just turned up that defensiveness so high that I realized it didn't matter what I was saying. Like my mission objective is to go there and say like, look, this is what women in the game industry are facing. This is where our professional challenges are. This is why this policy is important, right? But because of the way I phrased it, they weren't able to hear any of that. And I've really been thinking about how can I talk about how can I talk to an audience of mostly men about 
what women are facing in tech and lower that defensiveness, kind of make them an ally and make them feel not that I'm talking about them, but I need their help to solve a problem. Does that make sense? Yeah. But yes, it, it makes a lot of sense. Um, I wish, I wish I had my daughter Sophie here mm-hmm. to, to give her response because she is, is also doing something similar to you, not in the tech world, but in the, in the science comedy world, because she's mm-hmm. got her science comedy TV show. Because, really? Yeah. Because she said the only people who were really on television doing science for large audiences were men. Yeah, that's true. Except, except she said for Miss Frizzle, that was the only one. Right. <laughs> yeah. And she's a cartoon. Yeah. But, but I think what you activated in those men, you can say that's how women have felt for years. Yeah. You see that, how easy it is to just make somebody feel like they're worthless, yeah. that they're dismissed, that they somehow are threatening. That's what we've experienced. Yeah. There's a, what's the saying? When all you've known is privilege, equality feels like oppression. <laughs> And even I don't even like using the word privilege like that because it implies that it's something that not everyone deserves or has earned. Because hundred percent, yeah. But you know, I think you're tapping into you know the male female brain disparity if there is mm-hmm. one. Let's say there is one, and men, right? Traditionally. You're the hunter and the women are the gatherers, all that. Who knows whether any of that is really true? But let's just say that that's the foundation for a bit, which means that one group has to be stealthy and another group needs to be cooperative. Mm-hmm. One group has to say, okay, be very quiet. <laughs> okay, be really quiet because we don't want to startle the deer that's over there. And there's another group that says, hey, where are the carrots? Did you see over there? Did you see that tree over there? That's... So, you know, there's there's a different approach to solving a problem. doesn't have to be, but there is. And I think women are much better at, at solving problems together as a group than men have been. Men somehow get all, like, freaked out about it. Like, somehow, I'm not enough as much of a man if, if I need help from someone, which... You know, we wouldn't be here without each other. Sure. There isn't, you know, there probably aren't many people listening to this show who are not wearing some form of clothing. Well, you didn't make that clothing. Mm-hmm. Somebody else made that clothing. We, we are so dependent on strangers, people that we will never meet. Now let's recognize that and be grateful for it. Where's the gratitude for this? So you're... <laughs> Why were the guys there, do you think, in the audience? I think I am a, speaking really honestly, I think I am a somewhat controversial figure to many gamers because, you know, basically I stood up to say women need to be treated better in this field. And I think that. Um, you know, to be really honest with you, there was a lot of YouTubes making fun of me. There's a lot of Reddits making fun of me, a lot of Twitter making fun of me. Um, and I think that there's a, a certain spectacle that that comes along with that that makes me someone people want to hear from, whether they can ask me aggressive questions or be snarky or 
um, uh, just see any of that. So, um, you know, or maybe they genuinely care about women in the game industry and want to debate how to make it better. I, I don't know, but, uh, I, I think that there's a, um, I think that there's a, I think there are a lot of men out there that want to challenge this idea that women are, are facing structural discrimination in the game industry. Yeah. I mean, so, so I, I can't even remember why I like disliked you back in like, <laughs> Oh, of course, of course I did because wow. why wouldn't, you know, I remember watching, um, Chris O'Neill, you know, uh, Oni plays, if you've heard of that, they played uh, your game, Revolution 360. Yeah. And it was all like cracks about, I don't even remember, but it just fed that that beast of, oh, this cartoon character. Yeah. Yeah, she sucks. <laughs> so I can imagine like young men going just to like see if they can get a rise out of you or. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's interesting when you, you have a high profile, it's almost like there's a, a real version of you. And I've, I've been on this show enough. I think y'all can tell I'm a pretty thoughtful person, or at least mm -hmm. I try to be at my best. Um, it's like, there's this alternate reality version of you. That's all the darkest interpretations of anything you've ever said or done. And then there's the real version of you. Um, I do think looking back on that time period, you know, I was traumatized. I was on a massive stage. I think I did 300 interviews around the world in two months while I'm living out of a hotel because of death threats. So I look back at that. I sure didn't handle all of that perfectly. I would redo massive parts of that today. But um, yeah, I'm sure that fed into some of that cartoon characterization. But, um, you know, I... I it's just it's it's a weird thing as a public figure you have to get used to so many people hating you if that makes sense yeah but it's so hard to even deny like so dr joe we we never talked about this save for like in passing with uh zem so we this uh twitch streamer we had on mentioning uh blizzard and activision this sure. huge huge game developer and publisher uh horrendous culture Yes. Uh, around the for women in the workplace. I, there was one that was driven to suicide. Yep. The male executives, when they would like go on business trips or whatever, they designate one hotel and they call it the Cosby suite. Mm. Yeah. And when the at Activision, there was a, a woman who uh, was actually bullied by her team into she died by suicide. And then afterwards, this came out in the court documents. Um, they passed around nudes of her around the office immediately after that. Like that's a, that's a really high level of uh, hostility towards women, I would say. So, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a, unfortunately a powerful statement about how many people are so quick to dehumanize another person. Mm -hmm. And really when they dehumanize, then they can hurt. Sure. But you can't hurt someone if they're human. You know, you have to make them something else. And I was just about to say that at every and any moment in time, you can remind someone of their value. You have reminded me of my value by honoring me by being a guest on the show. <laughs> okay? But every time you remind someone of their value, you increase your own value. Yeah. Because... You've become a benefactor. You've become somebody who has recognized that that other person is contributing to society. And so 
we all want to be around people who make us feel good. Yeah. Every time you remind someone of their value, you increase your value. You go to a, a coffee store or a grocery store, any store, look at the difference when you say thank you or you don't. As soon as you say thank you, that other person feels valued. And when you don't, they notice. They notice. Oh, yeah, 100%. And, and in our culture, at least 90% of the time when somebody says thank you, what does the other person say? You're welcome. Yes. Think, what do those words mean? Mm. It means you're welcome. You're part of my group now. You're safer. It's okay. Yeah, I hope this is an okay story to tell. But uh, a, a friend of mine, Alanis King, she's a, an automotive journalist. Um, and she, this last week, got really, really lucky. She was uh, given a uh, Lamborghini Huracan uh, uh, Technica to drive for an entire week. And she was telling me that one of the most magical experiences of her entire life was she would go out to like Dunkin' Donuts, right? And let people and people would be staring at it. And she'd be like, you want to sit in it? You want to come take pictures inside of it? And it would just be like tons of kids and strangers or she'd be getting gas. And thinking about that story in terms of what you're talking about and why it was such a magical experience for both her and the people that got to do that, because it made them feel valued, right? They got that experience because, oh, I'm sitting in this ultra nice car, something that's, you know, is for the 1%. And then she got seen as like, she got that thrill of seeing the humanity in all of them. So maybe there's a lesson to learn there. Yeah. And if sharing that. Yeah. Right. You, you know, you can share your your resources, folks, it's okay. We don't have, <laughs> you know, the same limitations that we used to. We have terrible distribution of the resources. And that we need to, that we really need to address. How do we get things a bit more equal? And yeah, I think that's, that is part of the divisions that we're seeing, Brianna, that that's what was happening in your world, in many worlds, that somehow we seen it either as a threat, but we can be something different. We can be allies. You know, respect leads to value and value leads to trust. But mistrust leads to devaluation and disrespect. Mm. And that's going to make people angry because they want that to change. How do you think, you know, one of the things I find I struggle with professionally sometimes is the people I really envy uh, professionally are the ones that are really warm and unguarded around people. Do you know what I'm talking about? People that just draw you in. They've got that huge heart and their huge energy. And I find that I'm always, I've got that little bit of guardedness. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And I think part of that is just growing up different in, in, in Mississippi and it was just built into me. But I, I, I find like the older I get, it, it's so hard to drop that around people when my professional skills really require me to be able to do that. Like, do you have any tips for um, kind of lowering that or, or kind of putting your best, most empathetic self forward? Yeah. Again, as soon as you recognize it, you can then 
say, why am I doing this? Yeah. What you think affects what you feel. You grow up in a place where there's a lot of tension. You're going to still think the world is full of tension. Yeah. But you have something other people want, right? They want your skills. They want you, because granted, let's face it, you're, you know, you're at this very high level of what you do. No, I'm not. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, yeah. And so other people will say, I I want to be like her. So maybe, maybe in psychiatry, there's this thing called a reaction formation and also another one called projection where we feel this envy, but maybe mm-hmm. that's what they're feeling. Hmm. Maybe what you're picking up on is what somebody else is really feeling. And then how do you turn that around? How do you make somebody not so worried that they're going to lose to you. This is, this was the actual, the, the subject of outsmarting anger. One of my, one of my earlier books. That, oh, that sounds was, really good. I would like to read that. It was the seven, the seven steps to defuse your most dangerous emotion, our most dangerous emotion. Hmm. And it's the first three steps were about us, right? The first thing to do is recognize rage. And anger is an emotion designed to change things. As soon as I'm angry, what do I want to see different? The second step is to envision envy. Am I angry because I'm envious that somebody has more than me? Third step is sense suspicion. Or am I angry because I suspect that somebody's going to try to take something from me? Right. So those first three steps are about you, about your anger. But if you think about it, it's not always your anger that gets in the way of success. It's usually somebody else's anger that gets in the way of your success. How do you mean? Oh, somebody else is angry. They then want something to change, which means they may block you from doing what you need to do, from doing what you right. want. Right. I mean, this is what you picked up on in the talk you were giving. Sure. People were angry because they thought that you were threatening them. You weren't, but that was what they picked. They were either envious or suspicious, angry. So- How do we address that? The next four steps. First, project peace, right? If we have a brain that picks up on other people's emotions, we can then influence that brain. Project peace, you engage empathy, right? You communicate clearly, and then you trade thanks. We can talk about that. But we are now at this moment in time, not for a commercial break, my friends. But to come back to Brianna, the I am, remember, has four domains, the home, the social, biological, I see. Because they interact, a small change can have a big effect. You don't need to change everything. Given our subject for tonight, Brianna, what small change can you recommend to our audience? What would I recommend for them? I think I would say... What you're talking about was seeing the humanity in other people and the respect that they are looking for. I think that is a fundamental of human nature. And I think if you're looking to just just get along with other people, understanding that they're looking for respect as well, that's a really fundamental part of human nature. So I'd take that with you this week, week maybe. Yeah, that's great. The second truth of the I am, everybody has one. Everybody's interested in what you think about them through their IC domain, which has an effect on their biological domain. Because, you know, it feels different when you feel respected or disrespected. 
Right. Because you're part of someone's home or social domain, this means you control no one, but you influence everyone. You get to choose the kind of influence you want to be. Brianna Wu, what kind of influence do you want to be? You know what I really want this next week is I go down to Georgia and participating in canvassing efforts. I want to I want to mirror the best in people. I want them to feel like I see the absolute best in them and I care about them and I respect them and I want to build a better country with them. That's I'm going to remember this show for the next two weeks as I'm out there in 40 degree weather knocking on doors. I'm going to try to project that into the world. Yeah, it's it's wonderful. It's all about respect. Respect leads to value. Value leads to trust. I don't need to judge you if you're different. But boy, I'm really interested in why you do what you do. I'm not judging you. Just interested. Why do we do what we do? Just like, why do you sometimes get envious or suspicious? Just because you came from, where did you come from? Mississippi? Mississippi. How does work? <laughs> anyway, I really hope that you come back again and you tell us what it was like in Georgia. I'm really interested to hear what that experience is like. But you're welcome back anytime. 100%. I would love to. Uh, I haven't shared this with you. I just recently celebrated 20 years of sobriety, something <gasps> I'm very proud of. So I, I would love to talk about addiction sometime on your show. Let's do it. Let's do it. Contribute to society to help yep. with your sobriety. 100%. Brianna, thanks so much. Tom, we'll see you next week. Larry, good night. Did she do it for love or was she tired of the thrill? 